is the Parenting for Faith podcast from BRF Ministries. Parenting for Faith exists to help you help the children and teens in your life to meet and know God. We do this through online events, courses and resources, and you can find out more at parentingforfaith.org. and welcome to the Parenting for Faith podcast. My name's Anna Hawkin. I'm your host, part of the team here at Parenting for Faith. And this is episode seven of season seven, the one about racial equality. And we're going to be hearing in just a moment from Lucy Rycroft and Azariah France-Williams. You can really look forward to that. Um, But before we do, I'm very aware that the 31st of October is coming up. It's Halloween next week. And I know for some families, you are totally sorted. Um, You have an approach that you've thought about and you've decided upon, which is that you don't engage with it at all, or you use it as an outreach opportunity, or you have a way that you respond if people come to the door. But I think for lots of us, it's just really hard to know how to be in the world and not of it at that time. And that can change with different ages and stages of our children as well. Just because we've done something one year doesn't mean it's going to work the following year. So we have got loads and loads of support and resources on our website, parentingforfaith.org forward slash topics forward slash Halloween or click on parents and carers, then seasonal and holidays, and then Halloween, and there's loads in there. Um, And I actually did a Facebook Live video with Messy Church a couple of weeks back. You can find that on our Facebook page, talking about kind of a process that we can go through to decide how to respond. So I really hope that's helpful to you. Um, Also, if it's half term for you this week, I hope you have a brilliant half term. I know there's a bit of a north-south divide, so I've maybe given away my southern roots there. Uh, But whether it's this week or next week for you, I hope you have really great time and find ways to enjoy all that's going on um and yeah it can be tricky can't it when so many of the activities are halloween themed so many of the normal places you go are full of pumpkins and witches and ghosts and it's tough isn't it but yeah as i say that's why we've created those resources for you so i really hope they're helpful but let's hear now from lucy and azariah So today we're thinking about racism. At some point in our children's lives, they are going to encounter racist attitudes either towards themselves or to a friend or classmate. And it's so important that as Christian parents, we help our children learn how to be good allies. To help us on this subject, I'm so delighted to welcome Reverend Azariah France-Williams. Azariah is author of Ghost Ship, Institutional Racism in the Church of England, which was published three years ago. He is rector of Ascension Church Hume on the outskirts of Manchester. Manchester. He's a husband and a dad. Azariah is a thinker on issues of peace and justice, race and reconciliation, and believes in the power of the church within the community to sow the seeds of radical change, which sounds amazing. Azariah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's wonderful to uh, to join you. And my goodness, that, uh, that does sound like a wonderful vision to espouse, doesn't it? It's great. <laughs> I'm really excited for today. I'm so excited to learn from you and uh, be inspired by you as well. So thank you. We're so grateful that you're here. Um, Azariah, I'm going to jump in and say that, you know, as as a white British woman, I think it can be very tempting when you've grown up in the UK and not experienced racism directly yourself to think that it doesn't exist, you know, that racism ended decades ago. Can you share something with us of your experience of growing up as a a black person in a predominantly white culture? Absolutely. So I grew up in Leeds in West Yorkshire and 
I uh, do something which young folks and uh, sociologists call code switching, where you, um, you move your language, your register, depending upon the crowd that you're with. And it, my mum used to do it as well. So when we were growing up, she um, came from the island of Nevis in the Caribbean, uh, which up until 1980, mid-1980s, was, um, was part of the empire, was part of the Commonwealth. And that's when it had its independence. And so there's this real sense across the Caribbean that they were British, that they were English, really. You know, and just as um, you might move from Bristol to Birmingham or something, moving from Nevis to Leeds was seen like that. You know, you're just going yeah. from one part of, of uh, your extended country to another part. And so... Whenever there was a, a call on the phone, she would um, she'd have the Queen's English, you know, say, hello, hello, <laughs> you know, and then yeah. she'd come off the phone and say, why do your homework? Have you done your homework yet? Why? <laughs> and, uh, and she was doing it instinctively, and so was I. So uh, growing up in Yorkshire, a much flatter accent like this, and, uh, and so I'd be, I'd be like talking to my friends alike. I remember a mate of mine used to come over and see me, Steve, and like, be walking and say, all right, Steve, yeah, oh, how's it going, lad? Yeah, we were in the same youth group and that, you know. And uh, we were walking down the road once, and then I saw one of um, one of my Jamaican neighbours, and I said, hello, dear sir, how are you doing? Everything all right? <laughs> and Steve said, wow. what the heck was that? Why did he talk like that? He talked right funny then. <laughs> <laughs> Steve was interesting because, he, 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 you know, he had a strong Leeds accent and all, but when I went to visit him in his home, his mum and dad were Scottish um, from near Glasgow. So when he was at home, he had a very strong yeah. Glaswegian accent. And that threw me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, sociologists, psychologists say that we all have different types of differences and physical uh, differences uh, can lead to a real sense of being an outsider. And so for Steve, as, as a white Scottish person living in Yorkshire, he was able to fit in and he was able to adapt. So he was able to be invisible when he wanted to be and conspicuous who he wanted to be. And, you know, I see this and this was, this was part of my experience too. I didn't see um, many folks around who reflected me in, in higher positions in society you know, I didn't in terms of like doctors or lawyers or things like this. I saw black sports stars. I saw um, black performers, but I didn't really um, I wasn't encountering or seeing uh, that. You know, I didn't see black folks in the police force or anything like that. And so it really created an internal us and them. There are some yeah. things that are open to me that I can do and other things that just aren't available to me. You can't really speak about race without thinking about class as well. Mm -hmm. And so we were, we were working class. She had had qualifications in accountancy that she had on the island of Nevis, a British qualification. But when she came here to the UK, um, they were seen as null and void. Gosh. And she didn't have the, uh, the sort of the, uh, the wherewithal to be able to fund herself through. She did eventually uh, get some more qualifications, but she wasn't able to express her education mm. and, and, and have that uh, properly rewarded. And, and so therefore, um, she was a receptionist, she worked as a cleaner, um, 
and she, she did what she could to make ends meet for um, for us. Yeah. But um, she would go to the uh, the church that we were part of, and she would talk about the racism that she was encountering at work. One quick example. Uh, she worked in a place uh, which was a, um, a, a sewing uh, factory, a place called Hepworth, that made clothes. And uh, she would sit on the bench and her other white colleagues would bit by bit move down the bench until she'd fall off the edge of the bench um, as, as, as one of their kind of their, uh, their jokes. And the foreman uh, would, would see this. And then eventually one time he came down and helped my mum up and told off these these other women, and she actually made friends with some of them. And so he needed that in external intervention. Yeah. But she'd go to church and talk to the, uh, the the ministers about the problems she was having, and they would offer prayer, you know, which offers a sense of comfort. But there wasn't the sense of prayer and action. Okay. You know, if if you're going to pray for someone, I think you always have to be willing, at least open to the fact that God might want to use you to be part of the answer to that prayer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and so um, and so it felt like the prayer was a way to to sort of uh, to get her out of the way, as it were. You know, right, we prayed for you now. All right, you know, uh, that that's fine. Um, but it wasn't fine, and so no one wrote letters on her behalf or anything. And so, but this, she wasn't isolated in this. There was a whole uh, a, a whole number of folks that felt quite left out of particular aspects of the church's teaching. That, you know, those things that just um, uh, the things that are relevant to them, the injustices they were facing weren't being addressed. Part of the issue is in the Caribbean, the churches were led often by white um, aristocrats. So folks that had um, done the kind of Eton Oxbridge um, route. And so they had, I guess, a bit like the guy in different strokes. There was a there was a sense of the white man's burden. There was a sense of. Um, the white saviour mentality. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to the colonies, you know, uh, for, for a bit of a jolly. Uh, but then some of them actually made genuine relationships and began to to learn and to see and to grow. And so what they would do is they would give folks letters to go back to the um, to UK when they were moving to the UK. So my mum and lots of others had letters that they took to the churches that they um, came to. But unfortunately... Um, when they arrived there, the often the ministers were were so concerned that they were going to lose their white population by the black population coming in to the congregation that um, that often gave them a cold shoulder. Gosh, and and, and so <laughs> and so yeah, I remember. I'm, I'm going to tell you a poem now. Um, I remember going to uh, well, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll share the poem, which is um, a school trip that um, that I went on. I was probably, I don't know, 11 or 12 or something. Um, uh, I call this cat in, uh, cat in the Hat. I approached this stage feeling tight, feeling loose, searching for rhymes as a black Dr. Seuss. I remember my school trip to York Minster one year. Outside the building was beautiful, inside imposing, austere. I had had a bad haircut. So being conscious of myself, that day I collected my hat from off the hallway shelf. I was the black boy cat in the black boy hat that entered the minster, excited my peers. A thick-set white man approached me, reddening in the ears, saying, I'm sorry, you can't wear that hat in here. Meow, as rouge flooded my cheeks, I bit my lip, willing my eyes not to leak. My hat was my protection, my shield against scorn, 
His challenge left me divided, embarrassed and torn. It was God's house that didn't include me. There was a criteria I couldn't meet. My bad haircut, a bad hair day. I was left out of the place I went to to pray. The cat in the hat left the minister dejected. The removal of the hat led to removal of self and I felt rejected and so put myself on the shelf. So I'll wear my hat to include that little guy and God will all accept it. I want to counter the lie. So wear your hat, even wear your hood. It doesn't mean that you're bad or you're good. You're not some monster cloaked in sin. It's just an alternative form of vestment some of us choose to robe in. Wow. Azra, I thank you so much for sharing that. That's really, really powerful. And you've summed up in that poem, but also with the stories that you've told. And I'm sure, you know, behind those stories are many, many, many more that you could have told us. But that gives such a such a kind of deep um, insight into some of the the experiences you've had and, and doubtless other people have had growing up in the UK. And I'm I'm heartbroken listening to those stories. I feel like um, there's so much that we can learn and so much that we can do better. Some of our listeners, like me, may not have experienced racism themselves, but at some point they will experience it on behalf of another. It might be a classmate or friend if we're talking about our children. It might be a partner in later life. How how do you suggest that we start these conversations young with our children? What kind of things do we want to be telling our children and guiding them through? What I do, I underestimate the range of influences that my children already have. So I have um, three children, a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 9-year-old. And my uh, 12- and 13-year-old uh, will tell me regularly about their school friends who watch um, a Netflix drama called Top Boy. Mm. And um, Top Boy is very bleak. It looks at, it's an exaggerated um, view of, of a state life, okay. of, um, of migrants and impoverishment, um, drug dealing, gangland violence. Um, it looks at a number of social issues, um, uh, but it's, uh, it's entertainment. And so it will play up and exaggerate um, some of the types of things that are happening um, in those communities. And it leaves out some important um, elements in, in my view. And so, so they've been influenced by this sense of, um, you know, sort of top boys in, in the background. Mm. And so it's either this sort of um, grim, gritty, uh, sort of sensationalised, uh, almost like this sort of, uh, this, this, this sort of black life, um, gang life thing, which, um, uh, which a number of those kind of white friends finds quite exciting. You know, it's kind of tantalizing that, gosh, there's there's all of this stuff going on. But it's a parody. It's a caricature. But it's still it's, it's influencing minds. Sometimes if I do racial justice training or teaching with folks, I will um, I'll, I'll sort of sit around the folks and say, can you tell me a way in which you feel that you're different or or you have experienced being an outsider? And so people will share a range of things from um, uh, saying, well, actually, I've got red hair. And so I was always picked on at school because, um, um, because I have red hair. Or people will talk about um, being neurodiverse and so not fitting the template. And so I will use that as the beginning of a conversation for us to think about ways in which we have felt as outsiders. And then I'll then say, 
you know, I'll, I'll get them to use that. That'll be the empathy bridge to then begin to talk about racial justice. Okay. And can you imagine that sense of, of being an outside where your skin doesn't fit mm. um, in with a particular thing? Um, I guess for children, they think of be, being outside as, you know, sometimes to do with like if they're a bit shorter than other kids in their class or they're not as sporty um, or, uh, you know, the, the, when they put their hand up, the teacher doesn't see them or what have you, you know, they don't feel that they're the favourite. Mm. And so there's lots of different ways. So, again, using those things, that sense of being an outsider as a, as a way in. I mean, scripture's replete, isn't it, with outsiders, you know, whether yeah. it's um, uh, Ruth going uh, with Naomi or Joseph um, being taken as a slave mm. um, into Egypt, you know, or Esther um, sort of uh, being taken in um, to the court there. And, you know, there's so many examples. One of my favourites, I think, is um, is Daniel yeah, um, and his friends, um, not least of which because Abednego's original name was Azariah. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but I do see that as a really interesting take on the degree to which they assimilate mm. and adopt the culture that the new culture that they're part and parcel of and the degree to which they push back based on their religious and mm. faith convictions, but also some cultural convictions as well. Yeah. Uh, the things that they um, will submit to and the things they won't submit to mm. uh, and the way in which they negotiate that. Yeah. I think that there's always this negotiation um, that people are having with their identities those stories are so familiar and yet I hadn't seen them in those ways before and I think you're absolutely right so thank you for sharing that and I loved your ideas also about kind of being really aware of the media that we expose our children to representation and also the idea of kind of having these conversations with our children based on you know just the concept of being an outsider because we've all felt that in different ways and that's not to uh, reduce the kind of hurt and the heartbreak that people have felt through through racist attitudes um, and discrimination but it it is a helpful way in I think isn't it to our children because they can they can understand that um, one of our Parenting for Faith key tools is framing, which is essentially what we do anyway as parents, explaining the world, explaining how things work. But as Christian parents, doing that with God in it, where is God active? Where is God working? So as Christian parents, how can we frame diversity and ethnic variety in the context of a creative God? I think that... Um... <laughs> And children do what we do, not always what we say. And um, and I think the, the the biggest thing we can do as parents is to model it ourselves. Yes. And so uh, if we have, uh, there's an exercise I do sometimes where I ask people to make a list of uh, the five most important people to them who they'll go to for wisdom and advice. Mm. And then once they've got that list, um, I'll then say, you know, um, think about those people. What's their ethnicities? Um, you know, what's their sexuality? What's their faith background? What's their... Um, and we just keep on going through different kind of layers of difference. Um, and often people are quite surprised by realising that actually the people that they trust, that they will go to, they're prepared to be vulnerable to, are often people very much like themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the people like me syndrome, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sort of class brackets or what have you. And if that's 
uh, that's not church. You know, that's a club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the, um, the ecclesia, the um, that sort of Greco-Roman ideal of of the elites that would come out um, of the cities, um, the elite men of voting age who were able to make decisions on behalf of everybody else. Um, that was what the ecclesia was, and then that was that idea was smashed to include um, those that were enslaved and women and those that society had marginalised and rejected. And that's, uh, I love the fact that, you know, church was rebuilt. However, sometimes we try to get back to the, the original meaning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Doesn't do anyone any favours. <laughs> Doesn't do anyone any favours at all. So I think, yeah, I, go ahead. But isn't it, yeah, I was just going to say, like, I, I totally see what you're saying, but the struggle I, I feel, I live in York, which is a predominantly white place, um, our church is more ethnically diverse than it could be, but it is still predominantly white because it is an area. So I really struggle with framing this for my children because they they simply don't come into contact with that many people who are different to them in terms of their ethnic background. So what do you suggest for those of us who are kind of maybe living in predominantly white areas or maybe predominantly black areas? And, and you know, the problem could be reversed, couldn't it? Areas that, that aren't so mixed. In our internet age now, um, there's no excuse for not being exposed to things. You know, we can we can listen to podcasts um, by Black British content creators. We can read magazines. There's lots, you know, there's good um, children's magazines which promote um, uh, stories of, of Black young people, Black engineers, entrepreneurs, thinkers, those that want to do cookery. You know, just mm. everyday wonderful human pursuits. We can do it through, say, getting a newspaper, listening to a podcast, um, but we can do it by um, actively um, going to places and getting ourselves out of our comfort zones. Yeah. You know, sometimes I think that uh, the majority culture uh, can like to play um, host, but is more uncomfortable playing the guest. Mm. And so I, I can think of um, a church I used to lead and there was a lovely older Muslim gentleman who used to come along to our services week by week. Wow. <laughs> he, loved the, he loved the community. And, and he invited me to his home. And I went just thinking I'd have a cup of tea, but it made me a full meal. Wow. You know? Mm-hmm. And, and it was just incredible to get over my thing of like, I'm the church leader here. I'm coming to you. Ah, oh, okay. Let me just allow... Um, that of God in you to to, to minister to me and it was Mm. it was wonderful actually I think Um, when we do that we're we're making ourselves vulnerable aren't we and that's what so many of us find it hard to do we we find it easy to we want to be hosts because the bible talks about hospitality we know that's part Uh of our DNA as Christians um but actually to be a guest and to receive from someone else it actually can sometimes be more um what's the word it can speak more to that person because we're saying we trust you we're allowing us to be vulnerable we're trusting you to take the lead here to feed us if our child comes home and tells us that there was a racist comment some kind of racist comment was made within class to to another child in the class and they didn't know how to respond so they stayed quiet are there like some words that we can give our children thinking now about kind of quite young children are there some words that we can give them in these situations to help them 
learn to stand up for their classmates, to learn to be allies? So it may be that um, that your child talks to the teacher, Yeah, you know? Um, uh, it may be that sort of uh, after the incident, your child seeks out the child who's who's had the you know the difficulty and then goes with them to a teacher. I think about it in sometimes in terms of head, heart, and hands. So the head is um, I have found in my own experience when I have encountered um, uh, racist behaviour from others that when I've gone to tell somebody about it that um, the head's kicked in and they've begun to question me and and really was it and so it begins to make me doubt myself and although I feel it was and I you know pretty much think it was um, because I'm not finding that the person is um, is open to what I'm saying it it sort of makes me go more into my shell Um, so so head is um, uh, actually have an openness because if it were if it were your own child that came and said something had happened to them, probably the you know the, there'd be a greater sense of openness. You know, oh really? Right, okay, right. We're going to sort this out. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> so have the same kind of openness that you would have if, if it were a member of your own family. Say yes, okay. Um, so head and then um, heart is um, you spoke about being heartbroken earlier. That sense of of empathy, that sense of of active listening, but uh, and that sense of um, uh, you know, God is love, and we express God's love um, with, with, within the world. So, how can we how can we demonstrate a, a loving God um, within this situation? Mm-hmm. So, it could be say that the child um, who has had uh, the racism meted against them, if it's a friend of, of your child, um, perhaps you could organise a little play date, you know, or mm-hmm. take him to a cafe around the corner or you know a trip to the park or something and yeah. just just demonstrate um some kindness to that child mm-hmm. to begin to counter um some of the rubbish that they've been absorbing sadly however um there is um uh oftentimes those who should be taking responsibility school or what have you for a range of reasons don't always don't always notice or don't always um, take it seriously. So then it moves to hands. Walter, theologian Walter Brueggemann says, we only truly care about the things where we take our bodies to them. Um, mm-hmm. And so it may be that that you go to the school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, perhaps you're a parent governor or something and you've already got an in. Uh, but if not, perhaps you, you know, um, set up a, a meeting and, and just... Uh, and, uh, and and say something. It might not be about that particular case. It might be, I'm curious about what is our school's policy if someone um, has, um, has has experienced racism. Azura, very quickly, can you share where people can find you online, share a little bit about your book? How can people follow up with you if they want to know more? Ascensionchurchhume.co.uk is the website of the church. So, uh, you know, if you're in Manchester, do pop in. Um, that'd be lovely to, to see you there. I'm on X as um, Azariah Anglican, I think. Is that right? I'm not even sure. You'll have to double check this. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes, yeah. don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Although, to be honest with you, at the moment, I've been a bit quiet on social media. I do, I'm, I'm on threads as well as the same thing, whatever whatever it is. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if you go onto the, uh, the church website, if you want to drop me an email or something, my email address is there. 
And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been lovely to have the conversation with you today. And uh, yeah, wish you and and all of you well in this. Uh, uh, it's recording in October, Black History Month, where we're thinking about shining a light on something, you know. But um, uh, think about this beyond Black History Month as well, and keep on going, working for a, a world where uh, there is real, true racial justice and justice all across the board. Let's do our play, our part. This podcast is going out in October as well, which is exciting mm-hmm. because uh, I was aware of Black History Month, but it was totally by chance that um, the schedule worked that way. So I'm really, really pleased that it did work that way. As well, it's been an absolute privilege to have you with us today. Thank you so much for sharing. Great. Thank you. We always end our podcast with a question that you can ask your kid or your teenager that will hopefully spark an interesting conversation, something with no right answer. So today's question is, what makes you unique or what makes you different to other people, if they might not know that word? And what do you like about that? Have a great conversation. We're going to be back next week with Natalie Thomas Runyon talking about when your kid is let down by the church. (laughs) 